This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Quip, CW Hemp, ZipRecruiter, Blue Apron, and our supporters at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. Am I pretty? The word yokai loosely translates to a bewitching specter or beautiful mystery. There are many kinds of yokai, from the kind to the mischievous to the outright dangerous or evil. They can sometimes bring good luck, but other times... Death is the only thing awaiting you when you encounter them. So tonight, we will visit with a few of the more dangerous yokai. Are their stories based on reality? Or are they just allegories designed to teach society the dangers of low morals and bad behavior? Two of the yokai you will meet tonight may ask you a riddle when you cross their path, or they yours. Pay close attention so that you will know how to answer. Be warned, however, sometimes there is no right answer. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is special guest Tara Devlin from the Koabana podcast. Katashihaya ekase ni kuru ni. That was a magic spell from the Shugaisho Japanese Encyclopedia that, when chanted, will protect you from the Hyaki Yagyo, or the dreaded night parade of a hundred demons. Join us tonight for a lesson on the yokai that you never want to meet. And the Murabaku. Oh, that's pretty good. No, I, I'm sorry. That's probably, let's just not get into it. But uh, I don't do that one very often. Uh, yeah, we are Becco, and the <laughs> Halloween <laughs> hoodies are done, dude. Uh, yes, finito. They are out of production. If you ordered one, it will be on its way soon if it isn't already. But we have a nice consolation prize for those of you that missed the hoodie boat. Well, it's not really a prize because they're not free. Yeah, it's a figure speech. Yeah. But he's right. They aren't free. But we decided to do another limited run of something else fun, a long sleeve tee with the jack-o'-lantern version of our logo in orange, which oh, you can, nice. can see that jack If you're not on Twitter, that's the one we're using there right now. Those are going into the store on October 14th and will be available for pre-order through October 19th, meaning that you have until the 19th of October 
to order them. And then we are taking them out of the store and uh, we'll print and ship all the orders that came in up until that point. Yeah, these are great shirts. Long sleeve for the cool fall weather and jack-o'-lantern Al on the front, but only in the store for six days. So get on over there and get one if you want one. And we'll be bringing hoodies back with our regular logo later on this year. So don't worry about that if you didn't get one of the Halloween ones. Ah, that's right. Well, anyway, tonight's a fascinating show. But before we get into it, a word of warning. And we know, uh, because we hear from our listeners frequently, that we have lots of younger ears listening. And we'd like to take a moment to warn you about tonight's show. While it's not explicit in nature, per se, it will depict particularly graphic violence in a way that may not be suitable for younger children. So... Listener discretion is advised. We would like to welcome Matthew Meyer to the show. He's actually one of the earliest friends we made when we started the podcast out several years ago because I was trying desperately to figure out how to find something interesting to explain to our audience the new angles of things we were going to go on. And I found him and some of his artwork, specifically the Nurikabe. I was so fascinated with it was because it was a wall that would stand in front of you when you were lost at night. <laughs> so anyway, it's very much our pleasure to have Matthew on the show talking to us now from Japan. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here. First of all, just thanks again for taking the time to talk to us. Maybe you could explain a little bit about your background, how you came to be living in Japan, and how you got interested in yokai. Sure. My background isn't all that interesting. Um, pretty ordinary American life, I think. Grew up in the suburbs around Philadelphia. And I'd always had an interest in ghost stories and fantasy and the supernatural. I was a big fan of video games and Dungeons and Dragons and all that sort of thing. So I think I have a... Um, a long background in fiction and folklore and things like that. So when I was in college, just like a lot of people my age, I was interested in anime and Japanese culture. It's sort of a thing that people get into in high school and college. And I decided that I would go to Japan and just see what it was like. So I did a summer program abroad, just a language study program where it was homestaying. And I really enjoyed it over here. Part of the reason that I was interested in Japan, besides just the thing that most young people enjoy, like anime and, and manga and such, I was studying illustration in college. And as you may know, Japanese illustration has a very rich and long history, going back through woodblock prints. You know, even today, Japanese comics are world famous as well as animation. So the illustration world here is pretty deep. And... When I came here, I got to see some of that firsthand, not just TV shows and books, but just the way that the same sense of design sort of steeps the culture. Poster advertisements here look a lot different than they do in the United States, and sort of the just the artistic aesthetic really captured me. So when I was here doing that homestay, it really made me want to come back. So I returned to the U.S., and I finished my studies, and worked for a couple of years, and then finally saved up some money and came back to Japan, deciding to stay for as long as I could. So I was working here and still doing illustration and trying to find a way to continue to make art my life. The trope of the starving artist isn't for nothing. It really is hard to sort of get started as an artist. So sure, sure. you end up doing other jobs while you're doing art on the side until you can finally transfer into doing art full time. So one of the things I was interested in, as I said, growing up, I was super interested in folklore and ghosts and that sort of stuff. So I wanted to look into traditional Japanese ghosts and folklore. And I had read a little bit about them when I was a kid. I knew a little bit about Japanese ghosts, but there's not too much information about that 
overseas. So when I was here, I thought, oh, what a great opportunity to sort of dive into that world. And if there's something interesting, I can paint it on my blog, do a little introduction for it. And I sort of thought I would do a Halloween project. This was almost 10 years ago. So this was before Instagram and before things like Inktober, where everyone was doing these mass art projects. But I thought it would be a fun thing to do a little art project in celebration of Halloween. So that's where I came up with the yokai a day idea, where I would paint one traditional Japanese monster every day and post it on my blog. And it was mostly just for fun for me, but it ended up being pretty popular. And the more I worked in researching and painting yokai, the more that world sort of opened up. And I realized it wasn't just a small subset of folklore. It was sort of a bottomless pit, or maybe an endless fountain is a better way to describe it. But (laughs) this endless world of the bizarre and the strange, and that sort of checked all of my boxes, and I, I fell in love with it very quickly. And so how long have you been doing that now? I guess I started that in 2009, so this year will be nine years. Okay. You have family back in the Philadelphia area? Yep. All my close family lives in Philadelphia, and I've got cousins and aunts and uncles all over the States and England. So my family is sort of spread out all over the place. They come to visit you or do you come back to the States periodically? More often than not, I go to the States. Yeah, sure. So that's really cool. So what part of Japan do you live in? I live in Fukui Prefecture, which is a place that probably very few people have heard of. It's off the tourist path, but it's in the central section of Japan, on the Sea of Japan. It's just about a, an hour and a half north of Kyoto. So most people end up going to Kyoto, but nobody goes north from there to Fukui. It's a very rural prefecture, but uh, to me, it feels sort of like New Jersey does. So uh, it's familiar to me growing up here <laughs> or growing up there and living here. I want you to explain to our audience what yokai are. Also, you can feel free to correct me. If I'm not saying it right, definitely (laughs) tell me how I should refer (laughs) to them. Well, like all Japanese nouns, there's no difference between singular and plural. So people will say yokai, and, you know, if there's multiple of them, you still say yokai. Okay. Like the word deer in English or sheep. I think it sounds awkward to add an S to any Japanese noun. So I don't really say yokais. I just say yokai earlier when you said that it was a bottomless supply of characters and that sort of folklore, is that because people keep adding to it? Or is it because there is just so many already before you even started? What happens when you run out of yokai? Or is that just not going to (laughs) happen? Well, I don't see any danger of running out of yokai in sight because as I research one, I discover three or four more at the same time. So uh, it really is bottomless. But I think the reason is because people in the past created so many of them. And Japan is a mountainous country. So naturally, it's very, very segmented. People live in very isolated communities and remote villages. I think people tend to think of big cities like Tokyo and Osaka when they think of Japan. But while there is a a very large urban center of Japan, there are a lot more small, isolated mountain communities than you'd think. And each one of them has their own traditions and folklore and People have sort of always been fascinated, even in, you know, hundreds of years ago, people from the cities would collect stories from people in the boondocks, basically, and uh, use them as entertainment for the, the urban readers. There's a very long history of Japan having its own isolated communities that develop their own unique stories, and all of those sort of fit in together with the yokai world. There's a lot of similarities between them, but there also are unique flavors from place to place. So is it really just a wrapper for ghost stories in Japan, or are there other ghosts and stories that 
exist outside of the qualification of yokai within Japanese culture as well? Well, the word has changed over time. I think the word yokai first appears roughly a thousand years ago during the classical period, the Heian period. But it wasn't really a common word then. And for most of Japanese history, people didn't say yokai. They said bakemono or they said oni, words that essentially had the concept of encompassing all strange and supernatural creatures. And then in the late 19th century or early 20th century, there really became an interest in folklore studies in Japan. And the word yokai sort of came back into usage. And so it kind of has two meanings. There's a narrow meaning, which refers to monsters that are not gods, they're not ghosts, and they're not demons, but they're sort of a colorful array of various monsters. But then there's also the broad meaning where yokai encompasses the entire supernatural. So it encompasses the same weird little goblin-y creatures, it encompasses demons, it encompasses ghosts, it can encompass gods, and it even encompasses phenomena like sleep paralysis or eerie sounds and things like that that are not actually creatures, and even monsters imported from abroad, like Dracula is sometimes considered yokai by people in Japan. I tend to find the broad category is much more useful because if you look at it in the narrow situation, there are yokai that blur the lines too much. You can't solidly define it. So it works best as just an all-encompassing word that has a very vague and broad meaning. Would you say it's kind of a synonym for the word paranormal? Yeah, definitely. Okay. That's something I did not understand until just now. That's interesting. Okay. I read on your very own website, yokai.com. That's your site, right? Yes. Yeah, yep. you maintain. <laughs> I was reading there about Toriyama Sekian. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right. Toriyama Sekian, yes. Is he considered the father of modern yokai, at least the characters that like you share on your Patreon and in your books? He certainly could be considered the father. He wasn't the first person to start painting and documenting them, but he was sort of the guy who did the best job at the time. A lot of his works are copies of earlier works, but he really set the gold standard for collecting yokai, putting them in an encyclopedia, writing brief little quips about them. And he also did invent a bunch of yokai himself. So after him, you get a lot of people doing the same thing and sort of copying what he did. But I think he's, at least in my opinion, he's sort of the founder of the tradition of collecting yokai and studying them. And he lived in the late 1700s, is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay. And he was actually a famous artist himself, very renowned artist. And he he trained a number of famous artists as well that we know today as traditional Japanese woodblock printers. But he had this yokai side to him that he found very interesting. And it's thanks to him that we have a lot of preserved yokai as well. And partially thanks to him that yokai became the big phenomenon that they are. Definitely, uh, he's a very important founding father of yokai, I guess you could say. Okay. Is there any way to define how many yokai are out there? Or like when you said you were, whenever you're researching one, you find three or four more. Are you just pouring over books that you've collected? Are you going to the local library where you live? Or how does that work? How does your research process work? I always start online. This is folklore. So ironically, this is one area where Wikipedia tends to be a good taste of authority because folklore is not canon. There's no book that tells you what's true and what's false. It's really defined by the people and what they think. And it can change over time. So the idea of Wikipedia and anybody being able to edit it kind of works in the favor of folklore because people can add their own local traditions 
But of course, I still don't use Wikipedia as a primary source. It's just sort of you dip into that and see where it leads. And of course, books are sourced at the bottom of good Wikipedia articles. So you can read the article and then see where it came from. And I've been gradually collecting a very large library of yokai books. I also tend to look at Toriyama Sekian's books as sort of a primary source because I feel like he's one of the most important yokai writers. So I'll take what he writes very heavily. I look at old scrolls, and then I look at 20th century yokaiologists, folklorists, uh-huh. and see how they analyze and how they interpret Toriyama Sekian's works. Of course, there is Mizuki Shigeru, who is the most important yokai researcher of the 20th century. So uh, I always check what he writes about a yokai. And I have a number of books by folklorists who I also refer to extensively for yokai information. But again, I'll find a lot of yokai that are only present in a single book, and there's only one source for them. And I'll buy that book on Amazon, or I'll I'll find it in the library. And then when I see that, flipping through the pages, I'll see five, six, ten more yokai that I hadn't heard of before. So I sketch their names down onto a list and just keep going with what I was originally doing. But I have a to-do list that is ever-growing. Is it fair to say now that you're successfully making a living as a yokai artist and folklorist? Yeah, I'm doing this full-time now. I have been for a few years. It definitely started as a side project, but as an artist, you're always looking for the thing that you can start to do full-time. And uh, for me, yokai happened to be it, and I'm very grateful for that because I love yokai, and I'm glad that other people do, and enough people like it that I can sort of focus on this without having to take a side job. We've been supporting you on Patreon for a while now at a very low level, but it's more of a (laughs) courtesy because you've been so nice to us over the years. Oh, I love low-level backers. (laughs) But Low-level backers are the foundation, so thank you for that. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, one of the things that blows me away is the yokai a day. How are you so prolific? How do you create your work when you decide that you're going to publish one? What's that process? How does that work? It's different every year. Every year I sort of change my approach to it to try to find a more efficient way that's not going to leave me exhausted and dried up by the end of the month because it is a very daunting task. Um, The very first year I did it, I was sitting down with my box of gouache and my paintbrushes and a bunch of small boards and I would grab the first yokai I could find by searching around or asking my wife for a suggestion or reading what people commented and requested and I would just start working on it and if I did a bad painting by the evening, it was, you know, too bad. You have to post it. <laughs> so, yeah, some of those were not the greatest paintings I've done. But when you're doing them in such rapid progression, it's you don't have the time to be picky. Sure. And then in previous years, I'd also been doing Kickstarters simultaneously. So those yokai were ones that were going straight into the books. So I ended up having to start them in August and prepare months in advance to make sure that I would be able to put out work throughout October. So this year, I'm taking a slightly different approach. And I planned the yokai I was going to do in advance, but I am painting one per day now. I'm just painting simpler versions of them, which I'll go back and add in backgrounds later. I also chose yokai that don't have extremely complex uh, histories to research. Sure. That's one of the longest things that I spend time on is the research and the translation. So Most of the yokai I've chosen for this year's Yokai A Day are yokai that have very little backstory. It's mostly just a funny illustration and maybe a pun-based name. 
Yes. And I just wanted to say to our listeners, if you want to see this work, you can find Matthew Meyer on Patreon. And if you're one of his patrons, you get to see this. It's pretty amazing. It sounds like your workflow is very similar to ours, believe it or not. <laughs> if you were going to sum up Yokai in terms of the characters, these particular, specifically sort of the spirits that you've shared on your Patreon, how would you describe those to a Westerner if you wanted them to understand what these characters were, like Nurikabe or some of the other ones we might talk about in a little bit? That's one of the most difficult things to do, I think, mainly because yokai history is very, very old. So it's not a situation where all yokai can be grouped together by one common feature. You know, this is sort of why I think the all-encompassing concept of yokai is the best one, sort of as a synonym for the paranormal, because there are yokai that were ancient gods. There are yokai that were absolutely terrifying monsters in their time. And there are yokai that were made as jokes and are just utterly silly and irreverent humor. So there's not one sort of encompassing feature about them other than the fact that they're supernatural. So it's really hard to group them together by any one feature. That's an answer in itself because that explains (laughs) like the complexity of it. Hey, man, did you get your Quip replacement brush head in the mail yet? I did. Got the brush head in its cool, hygienic plastic tube, a three-month and a two-week tube of Quip toothpaste, which is great for travel, and a fresh AAA battery to boot. Yeah, me too, and replacing the brush head was a snap. It was, literally. You just snap off the old brush head, slide in the battery below the gentle little motor, and you're back to good oral health in a flash. No waiting around for hours for the battery to recharge like those bulky and expensive electric toothbrushes. That's a great thing about about the optional Quip replacement plan. New brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. And why is this plan a great way to keep up your good hygiene habits? Because three out of four of us use bristles that are old, worn out, and ineffective, which means your teeth and gums aren't getting the gunk off of them as well as they should be. And that can quickly lead to problems. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews. Again, I just love that I don't have to think about replacing worn-out brushes or how long I'm supposed to be brushing in order to get the maximum health benefits for my teeth. Quip takes care of all of that for me. A built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. Yeah, I know that sounds simple, but up to 90% of us don't brush for a full two minutes or don't clean evenly. So you might think you're doing a good job, but you can end up with decay just the same. All that's why I love Quip and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. It's simple, it's affordable because Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash legends right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. Once again, that's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash legends. Hi, I'm Wes from Australia, and when I'm driving my truck out in the outback, I like listening to Scott and Forrest on Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Before we go any further, I I did want to point out to our listeners that you've published three books now, right? Two books are currently available, and the third one is printing and and shipping out to Kickstarter backers very soon. And that will be available by the end of the year on Amazon. And the other two are already on Amazon, right? Yeah, the other two are on Amazon. The first book was The Night Parade of 100 Demons, and the second one was called The Hour of Meeting Evil Spirits, and both of those are on Amazon. Great. And the new one? 
The new one is called The Book of the Hakutaku. And what's that about? It's essentially a third volume of this yokai encyclopedia series, I suppose. They're not connected to each other by any narrative. They're all just standalone encyclopedias. But each of them is a collection of yokai that I've done by the Patreon and and collected over the years and sort of put in together in this format. It's sort of like a book version of yokai.com. Okay. That's a Kickstarter project or started out that way. Did the other two as well? Or Yeah, they did. Okay. Um, they both were Kickstarters and I've enjoyed using that platform. You have your core group of backers from the start and they're usually the most passionate people. So they've got a lot of comments and questions. And so instead of me just sitting in my studio working in silence day in and day out for a couple of years, how long it takes to put a book out. I sort of get a a group of people who I can communicate with. You know, there's posts and comments and emails, and it keeps me engaged with other people while I'm being an artist locked away, (laughs) forced to paint day and night. So uh, (laughs) it's a great way to have a, a core community who's interested and invested in the work, and they really care about it as much as you do while you're working on it. All right. So in terms of where yokai exists on the spectrum of good and bad, do you feel like they, they're in a gray space? Or are they mostly good, mostly bad? What would you say that spectrum is in terms of the allegories associated with them and their behavior? A gray space is definitely a good way to put it. There are yokai who are undeniably bad. We're talking about Kuchisake Ona today, and she's definitely one of the bad ones. And because yokai can encompass everything from gods to, you know, angel-like creatures. Technically, there are going to be good yokai too. But for the vast majority of them, I, I wouldn't say that they're good or bad. They're just like people. They do their thing. And it just so happens that their thing is dangerous or harmful to people. That's fascinating. Probably an, a good way to equate yokai with something easy for Westerners to understand is, you know, Halloween Town and the Nightmare Before Christmas? Sure. Those people are all scary looking and they love scaring people and they love the horror aspect, but they're not actually out to hurt people. They're doing their job and their job is scaring people, but a lot of them are actually nice at heart. That's a good analogy for yokai. That's a really interesting perspective. They're just doing their thing. They're, just... <laughs> they're doing their thing. Yeah. And their thing happens to be dangerous or scary to people, but that's what they do. Right. Well, one of the main reasons we wanted to talk to you is because you are an expert on yokai, and there were some yokai in particular that were interesting to us. And I guess one of the first ones that I had wanted to talk about was, and I've got to make sure that I'm not destroying the name here, is it Onryo? It's a little bit of a tongue twister, but Onryo is yes. the word. Uh, could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about Onryo? So Onryo is a big category of yokai, and it's one of those words that occasionally people will say, oh, they're not yokai, they're onryo. So it's one of those things that sometimes doesn't fall under the umbrella of yokai. But if we're using yokai as the broad umbrella term, they certainly do. Okay. And the basic idea of an onryo is that they are a vengeful spirit or a vengeful ghost. In the old days, about a thousand years ago, this is the Heian period, the classical period of Japanese culture before the shogunate took over. There was sort of a, a aristocratic cult based around the emperor and the imperial court. You know, this is the era of very, very elaborate court ritual, those 12 layered kimonos that you see in, in ancient Japanese paintings. And one of the most all obsessive, time consuming things from these nobles was obviously the ever upwards battle of trying to increase your status. 
you see that in shows like Game of Thrones where they're killing each other to try to get better status or I assume Downton Abbey, although I, I don't really watch that, but you know, it's <laughs> royalty always clamoring to become more relevant to the people in charge. And so that was going on in, in the classical period. And one of the people's greatest fears was that after a noble died, is that they would come back and get revenge on those who stole their prestige or insulted them or otherwise lowered their status. These are aristocrats for whom status is everything. So if you can embarrass someone else at court and increase your own status, you would definitely take that opportunity. There was a big superstition that when someone died, if they died with any sort of grudge or revenge or any strong emotion, then that emotion could linger on and sort of warp into a spirit after their death. And those spirits were the onryo, these vengeful, emotional spirits. Okay. When we see ghost stories and things like The Ring or The Grudge and, and all of these popular Japanese horror stories, the main characters are usually onryo because they just have that sense of undying hatred and vengeance to them. And most Western ghosts also would fall under the category of onryo, I think. Okay. The nobles back then were terrified of Onryo, so the majority of Onryo stories do come from that period. What's interesting is that you don't actually have to be dead to create an Onryo. There's a type of Onryo called an Ikijo, which is a living spirit. And even people who are alive, maybe in their sleep, their emotions leave their body and materialize into a ghostly form, and they can go and do terrible things to those who have wronged each other. And so there was a lot of magic and ritual that developed around this superstition about ghosts. And that's where we see a lot of things like onmyodo, the yin-yang magic, and astrology, and ways to act that would not anger the spirits of the past. And you would say that the most famous onryo is oiwa? When you say Onro in Japan, it's impossible to escape the story of Oiwa. She is the number one ghost in Japanese history. Oh, and really? she is actually from the Edo period, so she's not part of this the classical tradition. But again, that tradition continued throughout all of Japan's history, and people always enjoyed those ghost stories. And so her story came about in the Edo period, and she sort of rocked the kabuki world uh, and the, the world of theater. And part of the reason that her story was so much of a hit was that there were a lot of mysterious things that happened around the telling of her story. There's a legendary curse that is supposed to affect people who perform her story in theater or even on television. A lot of mysterious deaths are recorded around the productions that have gone on throughout history. So I think it's kind of like Macbeth. That sort of idea exists with Oiwa's story. But people continue to retell it despite the risk. Well, it's a very, very popular story. So usually these days when someone puts on a show of uh, Yotsuya Kaidan, which is the story that Oiwa is in, they'll visit her gravesite in Tokyo and they'll pay respects, make a little donation and pray and sort of ask her for forgiveness or for permission to put on the show and hope that nothing bad happens. There's a real grave? She's a real person? She's a real story. And obviously parts of the story have been fantasized and, and elaborated for theater, but it is based on a true story or a, a true person anyway. And what was the true story, original story of her? Well, it's a little bit muddied by history because the legend has taken over, but essentially she was a woman who her husband probably murdered her family and then murdered her 
and then blamed a lot of problems on her, uh, accused her of adultery and killed her in revenge. And basically all of that to steal her family's wealth. Although how much of the story is historical and how much of it is just based on perhaps maybe a single murder is hard to tell. When did she pass away? When did she die? I'm not sure, actually. I don't have those dates, okay. but was probably in the early 1700s. There's okay. a number of stories like that where a real-life murder turned into a folk tale, and then a hundred years later was turned into a kabuki play or a no play. And so even the story that became the popular version is a hundred years after the fact. So how much is actually rooted in fact is very, very debatable. All right. So here's the next one that I was curious about, the uh, Yonaki Ishii. Yes. Can you tell our listeners that story? There are actually a number of Yonaki Ishii stories. Basically, the name means a stone that cries at night like a baby. So it's a stone that emits a strange noise. So you can imagine Japan is a mountainous country with lots of forested, boulder-covered mountains. And if you leave your village at night, you would probably hear weird noises coming from the mountains. Could be monkeys or cranes or other wild animals. So those develop into these stories. And the most famous Yonaki Ishii is located in Shizuoka Prefecture. But the story of there is that a woman was walking home through the mountains at night and a bandit uh, leapt out to rob her. And he slashed her with a sword. And as he did that, he cut through her and he, he cut into a rock. And he wasn't able to cut all the way through her. He just sort of stabbed her through and chipped his sword on the rock. And then he stole her money and ran away. And as she lay there dying, her soul sort of passed into the rock and allowed it to cry. And at the same time, the child that she was carrying, her baby, crawled out of her belly and began to scream and cry in the night. And later, the townspeople could hear the rock crying. And they went to investigate and they found this big boulder and the dead body and they found the baby sort of nestled underneath the boulder. Wow. And so a priest rescued the baby and raised him. And there's a whole revenge story that takes place after that where the, the baby grew up to become a sword sharpener. And one day a man comes in and says he needs his sword sharpened because he chipped it on a rock in the mountains over there. And the young sword sharpener, of course, recognizes the story as the story of the person who killed his mother. So he immediately takes his revenge and slays the bandit. There are a lot of similar stories like that in other prefectures, but that's sort of the most famous Yonaki Ishii story. Would you say that that story or the series of those stories is rooted in any kind of reality or are they pure folklore? What do you think about that? It's hard to say, really. I think you can look at these yokai tales as sort of old urban legends. So there is probably something that caused the story to happen. It's possible that a woman actually was murdered and robbed, and then her baby was rescued by someone. It's very likely that mysterious noises were heard coming out of the forest. That's not anything weird. But whatever caused those things to sort of clump into this story is a mystery. But whatever it was, the story became very popular and spread and uh, went from area to area and each local area probably added their own version or twist to it, and it, it became a common urban legend in each region. It's one of the more popular ones that you would hear regularly. Yeah, I think if you were to speak to a Japanese person, chances are if you said Yonaki Ishii, they would have heard the story growing up. All right, so these are the last two that we wanted to talk about. The first one I wanted to ask you about was Teke Teke. 
So yes. can you tell our listeners the story of Teke Teke? Teke Teke is more of a modern 20th century yokai. So this is born out of an urban legend. But kind of like I said with Yonaki Ishii, I think a lot of the lasting yokai stories, even things like Oiwa, they're all based on urban legends. So Teke Teke is a perfect example of a 20th century yokai tale. Okay. The name Teke Teke is the sound of somebody running on their hands. Imagine a person who's been <laughs> chopped in half, but their upper torso is still running and it goes ticket, 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 ticket. It's the sound it makes as she's chasing after you. So she's named after the noise of the ghost. If we were to describe her in folkloric terms, you could say that Tiki Tiki is the onryo of this woman who was supposedly murdered some time ago. There's a lot of versions of this story. Almost every region has their own version. So researching this was interesting because when you get 30 different versions of the same story and you want to boil it down to one, you sort of have to pick and choose the parts that are common threads among most of the stories, but there's no story that has all of the same threads as the others. So there's a lot of guesswork and a lot of the parts of the story would just be, I would just choose them based on, I think this completes the narrative better. Right. The end result is the the version you read on yokai.com is, sort of the most popular version, but it's not at all the definitive or authoritative version. Although I'd like readers to enjoy reading it, I, I don't want them to think of it as the true tale or the, the actual tale, because I think with folklore, any tale is authentic. Oh, that's well put. The gist of the story is that uh, a woman died and is cut in half. Usually it's she falls onto the train tracks and the train runs her over and severs her in two. And because it's so cold outside the blood freezes and she doesn't bleed to death right away. So she's severed in half, conscious, and she crawls over to the, all the way to the train station to try to ask for help. But the train conductor or the, the station attendant sees this and he's, he doesn't want to scare the passengers or the people at the station. So he just covers her up with a tarp. It's already this horrible, horrible thing has happened to this woman. And you can see how that is going to turn her into an onryo. Not only is she killed and unable to die, but she's in searing pain. And then the insult added to the injury of not even being offered help. Although this is a 20th century story, that's exactly like the thing that would cause a onryo to be born a thousand years ago. Just the pain, the suffering, and then on top of it, the fact that she wasn't offered any help when she needed it. So she passes away there under the tarp at the station. And now she's a ghost. And she appears to people for no particular reason. She doesn't go after bad people or good people. She just appears to people. So part of her terror is that she just strikes at random. Anyone can be a victim. Mm. And she can run as fast as a car. So you can't get in a car and drive away from her. And she can follow you wherever she goes. There's all of these asterisks and footnotes where, oh, if you do this, don't worry, she can still get you. There's, <laughs> there's no way to get away from her. Right. And you see that in a lot of 20th century urban legends. No matter what, she can teleport or she can fly or she can run real fast. She can get you no matter what. There's no way to say, oh, I just get in my car and get away. Right. And when she catches you, something bad happens. Every urban legend is different. A lot of times they'll say she steals your legs. Uh, sometimes they just say she murders you brutally. Sometimes she's carrying a sickle and she'll chop you in half with the sickle. The key component is that there's usually a riddle involved. And either she asks you this riddle when she catches you, or you'll get a mysterious phone call before you die, kind of like in the ring, you hear that phone call and she says, seven days. So somehow there's this notice of what's going to happen to you, a little premonition. And in the Teke Teke story, she 
tends to ask you if you need your legs. And you usually answer, yes, I do, or yes, I need them right away. And possibly you're able to escape. Or in other versions, you're still not able to escape. And she asks you a second story about who told you my story or who am I or who something. There's a who question there. Mm -hmm. Again, it differs from region to region. And the answer is Kashima Reiko, which sounds like it could be a normal Japanese woman's name. However, in this case, it's written with kanji that would never be used for a person's name. Ka from Kashima is taken from kamen as in mask. She means death and ma is demon. So Kashima, mask, death, demon. And then Reiko is rei as in ghost. And then ko as in jiko or accident, like a traffic accident. She died from a, a train strike. So that's where the ko comes from. So Kashima Reiko is this sort of made up Japanese word that Sounds like a name, but written with different kanji describes the way that she was killed. And if you're able to explain that to her, maybe she lets you live, or in other versions, she still kills you anyway. So <laughs> that's the beauty with a lot of these Japanese ghost stories, is that even if you do everything right, you still lose. It was my first day on the job at the Hokkaido Railway Company, and I was eager to make a good impression. Not only because I had been out of work for some time and my finances were low, but also because the new job would help me take my mind off my troubles at home. You see, I recently broke up with my girlfriend, Kashima, and it wasn't a clean break, by any stretch, if you know what I mean. I liked her well enough, but I did not love her, and she knew it, even though I had told her I did. However, when it comes to love, hope springs eternal, and she was refusing to let go. So I did what I thought I had to, what I thought would be best for both of us in the long run, even though I knew it would cause her tremendous pain. I forced a separation, and I did it in the most effective way I knew how, cruelly and quickly, like ripping off a bandage. A clean break. I didn't mean to be so cruel, I, I really didn't, but after so many phone calls, so many texts, so many times she showed up at my door at all hours, begging me to reconsider and hoping for a reconnection. I was fed up, and I felt it was my only option. It was partly my fault, of course, because although I'd always felt something wasn't right about the relationship, I'd let it go on too long and let the bond get too deep. I took my selfish pleasure from it, and I gave back only so much. You see, deep down, I know I'm a coward, an often bitter and frustrated one, and if that's my greatest weakness, then my greatest strength is denial. I can deny and compartmentalize almost anything. So I let my heart go cold and sent her the bluntest letter I could write, hoping that would finally turn her against me. I delivered the handwritten letter myself to her mailbox, and then I severed all other ties. It seemed to work. It had been seven days since I last heard from her. Until today. The 10.44 a.m. Sapporo train was on its way to arrive at platform number 8 any minute now as I was cutting down tall weeds with a sickle near the fence of the tracks. We had power tools for that, and my being given a sickle to do the job was more of a first-day hazing of sorts, meant to tire me out before lunchtime in the freezing weather. As I watched the train approach, it was then that I saw her, or some woman, or something emerged from the bushes on the other side of the tracks. It was about 70 meters away, so I, I couldn't be sure, but it looked like her. I just hoped it wasn't. I hoped it wasn't anybody, 
but some woman was there walking towards the tracks. Or it looked like most of a woman, because the image also looked like an apparition, and although disturbing, some kind of ghost was the best option. As my mind was ticking through possibilities of who and why, I couldn't deny that it was most likely Kashima and that she saw me and knew that I saw her, and that's what she wanted, because of what happened next. Whatever this specter was, it deliberately glided right towards the tracks as the train slowed to come into the station, and she, this woman, appeared to be swept up right under the front wheels of the train. Of course, I was stunned and horrified. I, I panicked. I dropped the sickle and I ran for a bit, but not towards this woman, Kashima. There was no way to get around the fence from where I was, and it was too far to run to the aid station. I had not received a radio yet, and I was not allowed a cell phone, so all I could think to do was stand there, watching, waiting to see what remained on the tracks, if anything. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe I had imagined the whole thing, due to my constant worry about the relationship. As I waited for the last car to pass in this short train, I was first relieved that the engineer had not sounded the alarm. He apparently hadn't seen her. And then I was reassured to see that there didn't appear to be any body on the tracks. Nothing. But I was still not completely at ease because I had seen something. I just didn't want to know what. I convinced myself it was so much nothing that I didn't even think to make a report. So in my fashion, I denied it ever happened and went back to work and then to lunch. Later that afternoon, something would convince me otherwise, something I could not ignore. I remembered that I had left my sickle out by the fence and that my supervisor would want an accounting of all the tools before the day's end. I also needed to collect the trimmings. As I was walking towards the spot near the fence, but much nearer the station, something in the brush on the shoulder of the access road caught my attention. It was the sound of something rustling, struggling, making a shaka shaka sound in the weeds, causing them to part. As I walked near, it, she, Kashima, crawled out onto the gravel. Well, half of her. It wasn't possible, I thought. No one could survive that injury. And even if she had lived immediately after the train had cut her in half, it wouldn't have been for long, and there's definitely no way she could have crawled all that way to this spot. As much as I was shocked and repulsed, I was also compelled to walk over and look closer. I now had to know how this could be possible and to know if it was really her. I walked up to within a meter, expecting a lot of blood, but there wasn't any, and I couldn't figure it out. Had the cold weather and exposure frozen the blood, acting as a reverse cauterizer? The momentary curiosity about this medical wonder soon gave way to nausea, as I could see her viscera when trying to look for blood loss, and it made my mouth go dry and my lunch start to rise. Curiously, it wasn't the most nauseating aspect of this scene. No, what was most disturbing is that she now saw me staring at her and she had rolled over as best she could, rolled what was left of her, and her arms were now flailing at me, slowly, like a beetle turned over on its back trying to right itself. One hand was grasping at me, trying to pull me closer, it seemed. 
The other hand propping her up in the grass, well, that hand had the sickle I'd left behind. Her face was a contorted, ghastly white, I would guess from having no blood in it. But it was her eyes that frightened me the most. They were wild and piercing through me, but I couldn't tell exactly for what reason. Pain? A cry for help? Anger? The sickle in her hand made me lean towards anger. Anger, perhaps, because I had deserted her a week ago, and then again this morning, and I was about to do it again. You see, as I told you earlier, when something upsets me or I'm afraid of it, my go-to reaction, what I'm best at, my answer for everything, is denial. I took the heavy canvas tarp I brought for the clippings, took one last look at her face, and didn't even try to figure out the raspy words her anguished mouth was trying to form. I just covered her up. She couldn't survive much longer in this cold, right? I mean, she would have to be dead soon, and soon she'll be someone else's problem. I did the right thing, right? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do with dead bodies. You cover them up. I don't know why I didn't report this. I just didn't. I honestly meant to, because after all, I, I hadn't done anything wrong, not in my view. I can't be responsible for the actions of others, and I certainly didn't throw anyone under a train. This was all so unreal to me, I wasn't even sure anyone was really hurt. I could just be imagining all this. And so that's what I did. I just told myself I must be dreaming. This can't be happening. This isn't possible. I'll just finish out the rest of my day and go home, and when I wake up tomorrow, this will all have been a bad dream. I really thought that was going to work, this mindset, my denial. Except for this sound I heard on my way to the locker room before I clocked out. Coming down the hall, a very peculiar sound. Like the toenails of a large dog on a tile floor coming towards you. It couldn't be a dog. No dogs were allowed inside, and, and it couldn't be. I heard it once again on my walk home after I turned a corner. Like the sound itself, which only I could hear, was following me. I picked up my pace, but I tried not to panic, not like before. I got home, locked the door behind me. I ate, I watched TV, I climbed into bed. See, my denial is complete and powerful, remember? I was just about to escape the day into sleep and peaceful dreams, and then I heard the latch on the front door click open. I did remember to get my house key back, right? Would a key, would she even need a key? And then that noise again, tick it, tick it, tick it, tick it, was now coming from my tiny living room and down my hall, again like nails on hardwood, except this time it had another sound with it like a steel point clicking and scraping on hardwood. I bolted upright in bed. My denial no longer served me. I felt like I was in a dream. The one where you can't move, you can't scream. Although I may not know when I'm dreaming, I know when I'm awake, or I thought I did. But this felt like something in between. My bedroom door swung open. And then I knew this waking nightmare was going to end exactly as I was afraid it might. Kashima crawled towards me, but now she was trailing a smear of blood and looking even more dead. 
She climbed into my bed, as she had done so many times before. Except this time, she was aided by the point of a sickle. This time, I couldn't deny that she was about to become my better half. She was going to take from me what she had lost herself, and by doing so, join us together forever. But before she did, she had just one question for me. Do you need your legs? Hey, how's your shoulder been feeling in Kempo class? You know what? It's a ton better, but it is still flaring up from time to time when I exercise. I gotta say, though, I've found something that's been helping it out a ton. Oh, what's that? Charlotte's Web Broad Spectrum Hemp Extract Oil. Oh, yeah. You know, I've read a lot about them, actually. Their oil is supposed to help with exercise-induced inflammation. Well, for me, it does. My left shoulder is in a good spot. It feels good most of the time. But when I push it in Kempo, my recovery time is longer than I like. Charlotte's Web Hemp Extract Oil does an amazing job of helping my body recover from the inflammation in my shoulder. Hey, that's great, man. The thing I remember reading about Charlotte's Web is how their namesake Charlotte was introduced to their products when she was just five, and now she's a thriving third grader. That's right. You might have a lot of questions about hemp extract and how CBD works and what its various wellness benefits are, and if so, just research it on your own. You'll be surprised. My uncle's an ex-football player, and when I told him about Charlotte's Web, he got some of their hemp extract oil and immediately started using it. He said he's sleeping more soundly and doesn't notice some of the things that have been keeping him up at night. Charlotte's Web Hemp Extract is sustainably farmed, U.S.-grown hemp with no pesticides, herbicides, or fungicides, and it helps support sleep cycles and achieve a sense of calm and focus. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That's right. But I wouldn't have said yes to being sponsored by these guys if I hadn't used their hemp extract to soothe my shoulder. It's a great company, and their origin story, which you can research online, tells you everything you need to know about them. Charlotte's Web Hemp Extract, either in oils, capsules, or their balm, is a simple way to upgrade your day. And Charlotte's Web is offering a unique offer to our listeners. Go to cwhemp.com and enter code AL at checkout to get 10% off your order. Don't forget to enter code AL at checkout to get 10% off. Some exclusions apply. See their website for details. This is Mal. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. How do you feel about all these stories? When you're out at night walking around in your rural area, do you... I mean, ever having studied this for so many years, and have you ever seen anything strange? Do you ever find yourself wondering about this stuff? Or for you, is it just folklore? It just exists on the page. I definitely get the feeling. You know, walking down dark alleys, you get that chill that runs up your spine. And I mean, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. So we, we had Camden, we had Philly, and I'm used to, you know, walking down dark alleys with my fist clenched, ready to either punch or run. <laughs> that sort of terror is something I grew up with. Right. And I mean, now that I'm an adult, it doesn't scare me anymore. But walking through dark streets or walking through tunnels that go under mountains, you can definitely feel that fear creeping up on you. But it doesn't scare me these days. When I was a kid, I was scared of ghosts, but I, I don't believe in ghosts as an adult. So I find it more like a, an enjoyable scare, kind of like you get when you watch a horror movie, but you know that you're actually safe. Yes. 
So I, I love that feeling where you're walking through a creepy alley and the, the leaves are blowing. I still wouldn't walk down dark alleys in Philly at night, but, <laughs> but here in Japan, it's, it's a little bit safer, especially here in the rural parts. It's quite safe. So I can confidently walk down dark alleys and, and enjoy the terror without feeling like I'm actually in danger. Well, one of the things that we came across that was the impetus for this particular episode, which of course made us think of you, and that is the story of uh, Kuchisake Ona. Yeah, and that's a great story. I think it's probably one of the most exemplary urban legends slash yokai stories in Japan. I think more so than Kashima Reiko and more so than the Teketeke and other urban legends, this one everyone in Japan knows. The main reason I find it interesting is that although it's absolutely a 20th century urban legend, it has roots that go back much older, but they're almost unrelated. Basically, the theme of Kuchisake Ona is that there's a woman who's mouth splits open from ear to ear. So she's got, you know, like a, an Irish smile. Essentially, she looks like a horrible monster with a very wide mouth full of teeth. But that's the only key feature that unites all of the versions of her story. In the oldest versions, the Edo period versions, sometimes she's a prostitute at a brothel and a man grabs her shoulder to try to play a prank on her or, or say something to her. And when she turns around, he sees that her mouth has been split open from side to side, and then he faints, and sometimes he dies right there on the spot, or sometimes she steals his life, or sometimes she just disappears. And that's sort of where the, the concept came from in the Edo period. Can you explain the Edo period? The Edo period is from about 1603, maybe? Well, roughly 1600 until 1868. So it's sort of the high period of modern Japanese culture. This is the period from when the Tokugawa shogunate united Japan. Uh, the civil wars stopped. It was a period of peace and relative stability. There were no more province-to-province -province civil wars going on. And it was basically a period of Japan united, one military dictatorship keeping the country peaceful. And it allowed a big population boom and a big rise in literacy and culture. So this is... So it's like a, a renaissance. Exactly. It's like a renaissance. Okay. And it's also an area where contact with the outside world was very strictly controlled by the government. A lot of people like to call it the period where there was no contact, where Japan was the isolated country. But that's a misrepresentation. There actually was a lot of rich trade going on. It was just all strictly controlled by the government. There was not independent trade between prefectures. And, and this was sort of a, a way that the central government could keep a stranglehold on the provincial governments. You know, there okay. was still a lot of anti-government sentiment, but they really worked hard to keep that down and to keep the peace. So one of the ways they did that was by having the central government strictly control trade. Okay. Thank you. It also was a point where Japan had, a, I believe, the highest literacy rate in the world, extremely highly developed urban infrastructure, there were great fire brigades, great waste removal systems. Edo, which was the name for Tokyo back then, was one of the most sophisticated and, and largest cities in the world for much of that time period. This was a very big flourishing period for Japanese art and culture. And this is the period when you see a lot of kabuki, uh, no theater being developed, woodblock prints were developed. And of course, this is the period when ghost stories exploded. So for yokai tales and ghost tales, the Edo period is of extreme interest. Great. Thank you for that background, because that really helps paint a, a bigger sure. picture. Yeah, yeah, having the context there helps you understand why and when yokai came into mass popularity. So in these Edo period versions, 
monsters like that were usually said to be foxes or tanuki or badgers or some other animal who has magically transformed itself into a human in order, in order to play pranks on people. They loved to scare people. And so that was sort of the, the earliest version of the kuchisake onna. Then in the 20th century, the version that we all know came into being. And this happened in the late 70s. I think it was 1978 or 79. And it happened, at least according to most understanding, it began in Gifu Prefecture, which is really right in the smack in the center of Japan, and spread out from there. Although shortly after that, every region had their own version of the Kuchisake Onna. But essentially, it was a woman who would appear to people on the street and she's wearing like a, a face mask, like a, a surgical mask, or what a lot of people wear today when they have a cold, just to sort of cover their mouths. So you can't really see her face. And she'll approach you at night, and she'll ask you, do you think I'm beautiful? And if you say yes, she will pull off the face mask and reveal that her mouth has been split from ear to ear. And then she says, do you still think I'm beautiful? And if you scream or react, she'll murder you. Sometimes she'll stab you with a kitchen knife, or sometimes she'll cut you with scissors. Sometimes she'll split your own mouth from ear to ear like hers. This is where the versions of the tale spread out into infinite possible variations. But the idea is that something bad happens. And what happens if you say, yes, I think you're beautiful? In some versions of the story, when you, when you answer yes, she will leave you alone. She'll go away. Right. And other times when you say yes, she'll leave you and then she'll come back to your house at night and she'll murder you in your sleep. Ah. And other times you'll die in a terrible accident after that. So again, like with a lot of ghost stories, there's usually no way out of it. There seem to be some rumors that her story is based on a true story of some kind. Is it? Do you know if there's any veracity to that? Well, that is the general consensus is that, oh, yeah, my, a friend of a friend saw this happen. You know, that, that's how all urban legends sort of hook you, right? They, right? They've all got that, someone I know told me this, and, oh, no, it's based on a true story. It happened in Osaka here, or whatever the case may be. There's something that gives it an air of truth. And I would say that the general consensus is, no, there's not a real story that this is based on, but there are a number of stories that have lended to its credence. People have pointed to versions of the story in which she's an, an escaped uh, woman from a mental asylum. And then they point to a situation where, oh, look, around that time, a woman did escape from a mental asylum. So maybe that was the root of it. Or around that time, there was an accident and a body was found in a river. And maybe that was it. Or there are a number of variations that people will point to this or that or this incident and say that was part of it or that contributed to the root of it. And then, of course, after the popularity of the story comes into effect, there's also copycat stories where people would play pranks by dressing up like this or copycat versions of the story would appear. In the 70s, this actually became such a national hysteria that there were groups of PTA members who would walk all the children home at night from school because they were so worried about these Kuchisake Ona murders. Uh, this is such a, a well-known story because of the national hysteria that erupted from it. I even read that in the 70s, there was a service in Tokyo where you could actually order a Kuchisake Ona and a woman would dress up and visit a friend, you know, like a singing telegram kind of deal. Mm -hmm. But this was a Kuchisake Onagram who would visit a person's workplace or a house and 
you know, it was a it was a paid actor who would dress up as the part and pretend to be a kutsakeona to scare people. So oh. this was on such a national phenomena level of awareness that it makes it a very good case study for urban legends and for uh, yokai stories. With her or any of these yokai stories that have some sort of riddle attached to them, is there any way to bargain or talk your way out of it beyond just, you know, the varying versions of the story? Is there, oh, well, if you say this, you're going to get a chance to get away? Or what about the stories that Kuchisaka Ona, she likes hard candy. Can you trick her into letting you go if you provide hard candy or anything like that? There were two very popular solutions to the Kuchisake Ona riddle. One of them was that she does like hard candy. There's a candy called a bekoame, which is like a, a very large jawbreaker. And apparently, if you gave her a, a bekoame or if you said bekoame, either she would be too confused to kill you or she would just take the candy and, and leave you alone. And that would be one way out. Another way out was to say pomade three times, you know, the hair oil pomade. pomade. And I, I have no idea why, but, but yeah, if you said pomade, 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 it was supposedly enough to confuse her that you could run away. Oh, wow. That's uh, amazing. Other people said that they would throw a handful of money at her and run and that made her go away. And then people would say, oh no, that wasn't actually a Kuchisake Ono. That was a wild homeless woman who you threw money at. Or, you know, there's a million ways to interpret that, but they all sort of add to the story. Other times people will say, if you answer with sort of a, a uncommitted answer. So if she says, do you think I'm beautiful? You say, oh, you're not bad or so-so or something like that. You don't say yes and you don't say no. That way she doesn't think you're lying, but she also doesn't get offended by any sort of shock at your reaction. That might buy you just enough time to run away and lose her in the dark. So there are all these sort of interesting little strategies that people came up with in order to escape the Kuchisake Ona attack. But there's no universal accepted one. Do the other yokai that you've come across, do they have solutions as well? Or just only some of them have escape tales associated with them? The, the 20th century urban legend ones tend to have escape tales. And they're all kind of similar to the, you know, the same thing with Kashima Reiko and, and Kuchisake Ona, where if you confuse them or if you say something and then get away before she has time to react, you might be able to escape I think you see the same sort of thing reflected in movies like The Ring, where, you know, if you copy the tape and give it to your friend, maybe you can escape. But then in the end, sometimes you still die. So I think there's two sets of that. One, one part of it is there's a way to escape according to legend, and that sort of gives you a sense of safety. But then when you hear people say, oh, I know somebody who did that and they still died anyway, it further reinforces the horror. You do see that in... 20th century ghosts a lot. There are occasionally stories like that from Edo period ghosts, but I, I also think that maybe some of those stories were not documented as well. Of course, with the 20th century, we've got newspapers preserved and we've got now the internet that really document every angle of the story. Whereas the older ones, we've only got a couple of accounts. And I would bet that if you could time travel back to those times, you would hear dozens, if not hundreds of different ways to escape from these yokai fascinating. It's been amazing talking to you. We really appreciate you 
sharing these stories and taking the time out of your early morning to do that. I, I don't know if you, you have to get into the studio today and do some painting. Oh yeah. After this, it's painting all day. We've got another <laughs> yokai to paint today. That's admirable. We have a uh, tremendous respect for you and all your work. And we're going to let remind everybody where they can find your first two books and that this third one is on its way. We just really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Wow, that was all very interesting. And finally, we have covered yokai. I know. In a small way. There's so many, there's hundreds of them. You could do a whole podcast on it. You could do an, <laughs> yes, you could do an yeah. episode on one every time. Yeah, as he and said, he'll ones. never, he'll, yeah, he'll never run out. But yeah. we've had some requests to cover the ghouls and goblins and ghosts of uh, Asia. So we'll cover some more as we go along, but we wanted to get our toes wet and the blood of uh, yokai for this uh, Halloween season. So we hope that gives you a little taste. Well, before we wrap up tonight's show, we did want to talk a little bit about Matt's interview. We're going to go out on a final narrative story about Kuchisaka Ona. But before we get to that, let's reflect a little bit on some of the things he said and yeah. uh, some of the things that we wanted to point out about yokai that stood out to Astonishing Legends. Right. So the first thing was the word, which is interesting. And, and if you're not familiar with Japanese or how Asian languages are constructed, I think it's pretty interesting for the Western mind to kind of comprehend how those are put together because it's a very very lyrical and uh, illustrative and um, poetic language. It was funny, it's like if you try and translate an Asian phrase or an English phrase into a Asian language, it doesn't often make sense <laughs> yeah. because they are poetically minded languages, I believe. So the Japanese word yokai, once again, is made up of two ideas taken from the kanji. Yo, meaning bewitching, attractive, calamity, and kai meaning mystery, wonder, or specter, apparition, something mysterious or suspicious. I guess you could kind of think of it as portmanteau in a way. A yeah. lot of the concepts, yeah. Sure. A combining of two different ideas into one word. Kanji, by the way, are the borrowed or adopted writing characters derived from Chinese pictographic or logographic characters and used along with the Japanese syllabic scripts, hiragana and katakana in Japanese writing. The Japanese term kanji for the Chinese characters literally means Han characters. And one description I always like for describing Chinese characters and their meaning is that the character for peace in Chinese is a pictogram of a woman standing beside a house. So that's, oh. that's what I'm saying. It's, a, yeah. it's conceptual. It's like, yeah, it's peaceful, a woman in a house. Right. That to us represents peace. And so that's what you're seeing when you see that character. So I thought that was very interesting and in just kind of understanding how these terms come about, because occasionally like, we have a lot of listeners who are really into uh, Japanese animation and manga, you know, video games, and that is part of the culture. And they probably already understand that. I just wanted to explain that to, uh, to all the rest of us who, who couldn't <laughs> to get me. a handle on it. I'm yeah. going to go with me. Okay. <laughs> all right. I think one of the things that was interesting, too, about what he said was how the yokai are, you know, they're just kind of doing their jobs. They're yeah. doing what they do. And... That drew parallels for me to the Grim Reaper and the idea of fate and the idea of death. It's when it's your time, it's your time. And if it comes at you with a riddle, it doesn't matter what you say to the riddle. <laughs> right. You're, you were done before it got there. <laughs> yeah, well, I saw a transition, though, as he said, from the classic uh, Haiyan or Edo periods, maybe transferring that to European, Western European traditions of fables and fairy tales, where, as you know, a lot of them, you're confronted or the hero is confronted with a paradox and trouble. And to get out of it, you have to outsmart the one that's troubling you. So there's always a way. It's like Rumpelstiltskin. If you knew the name of Rumpelstiltskin, 
you could get out of usually owing something that you owed them. You know what I'm saying? Like you're having to pay up on something that you owed them and get away with the prize and your life. So there are usually ways to outsmart the person giving you the trouble or going to take your life or the one who has cursed you. Fate rewards the clever. So if you can get out of it, figure out a way that gets you out of it in the story. Maybe it's nihilistic, though, in these modern versions that there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> there's no right answer. You're yeah. going to die. The bargain is it might work. It might not. Yeah. There's a lot of vagaries. And I guess that these vagaries are made up of all the folklore right. around this stuff. Right. And we often look at the origins of legends and stories on Astonishing Legends. And one of the things that you often find is that at the very root of a lot of these stories, like the Jersey Devil or something, mm -hmm. you find this seed of reality. Yeah. And you can see how that has grown into the story that everyone's telling. Now, with these stories and these characters that are several hundred years old, mm -hmm. it's a little bit harder. And in some cases, even older than that, it's a little bit harder to find the seed because the information, the story that inspired the tale is lost. Yeah. But the tale is still there. And it begs that whole question that we talk about on pretty much every episode about, you know, what happens when everybody believes something? Does it create yeah, this thing? That's a good question because the panic and the resulting cultural and social, you know, reactions are very real. People can get hurt from this fear, this collective fear, and certainly superstition, you know, things like that are nothing new. Those things have been with us all along. I think how we react to them has a modern spin on it, especially nowadays in the internet age, where it's hard to tell fact or fiction and things. It's a different form of Chinese whispers, if you will, that telephone game we always mention about stories being passed on, being added to, and then it get distilled down into several variations. What's interesting about the stories that were mentioned tonight by Matthew is that there's a lot of variations on these. You know, when we look back and it's the Jersey Devil, well, there's two main kind of origin stories. Generally, there's a lot of variations with those as well, like little added things. It's like, no, it had fangs. Like, well, this one doesn't have fangs. It's just, it's got horse's yeah, teeth. It's right. like, this one flew up the chimney. And that one, that one flew out the window. You know, so there's little variations, but it's basically two divergent but uh, connected origin stories where the Jersey Devil sprang from Mother Leeds and all that, you know, and the, and the Cursed Child and all these things. Here, these are a little more uh, spread out. There's a lot of different variations, but as we've seen, there are commonalities in basically the appearance, kind of the outcomes, the scenario. Like in this one, what I loved is that uh, if you look on the wiki page, there's a flow chart with Kuchisaka Ona. Yeah. <laughs> which is, that's like a computer <laughs> flow chart, which is hilarious. We'll try and post that on the, on the website, but you can also find it on Wikipedia. But I love how it goes here. It's uh, first she asks, am I pretty? If you answer no, she kills you with scissors. Kills you, with, yeah, the little box <laughs> on Wikipedia just says, kills you with scissors. <laughs> if you answer yes, takes off mask, asks, how about now? Answer no, cut you in half. Answer yes, and it slits your mouth so it appears like hers. So there's really, yeah, there's, there's no good. It's um, a no-win scenario. <laughs> there's no end to the diagram that comes out well. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out the best way to go here. I think maybe kills you with scissors is probably the least offensive way to. Well, it's pretty quick, generally. So if, <laughs> if she says, am I pretty, just go with no. You'll <laughs> you get probably. out quicker. However, what I liked is that there are ways to confound her while you get away. Yeah. Maybe I've mentioned this before. I'm pretty sure I did. It's the old uh, word game, the early Mac game about uh, Hitchhiker's Guide that was all text. Kind of like the, you know, the yeah. Oregon Trail thing. Yeah. So my roommate, uh, he had it on his Mac, which was pretty rare back then. But it would ask you questions, and through the story, you type in stuff. So you couldn't get out of this room because what would happen is that there was a row 
robot who would clean everything up. So if you say, get out screwdriver to open door. Yes, I remember this now. He would go pick that up. So the idea, though, is that you put mail on the robot's head. And when it rushed over to clean something up, the mail would scatter in the air. He would bump into something and it would be busy picking up the mail. And then you could escape the room. Yeah. So it's a diversionary tactic. Same thing with her. You throw a hard candy at her. Yeah, the and she she loves the Bekoami candy, which is ironically also jawbreakers, kind of thematically fitting here. Uh, yeah, how's she gonna eat that? <laughs> no, so, well, she's got the, she can open her mouth to put one in. It's yeah, the, the jawbreaker. But it's funny that you throw those down. She loves that candy. She'll stop to pick that up or money. Right, uh, and then the modern day, and Matt mentioned this, the modern day thing was to be, I, I have a previous engagement. Apparently, yes. in current times, they're saying, if you just tell her you have a previous engagement, she'll be, oh, I'm sorry, I'm being rude. Please, go ahead. Exactly. You were, You're, you can go. <laughs> very polite Japanese uh, response. Yeah. You know, you, you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to put anybody out, because then it's a never-ending back and forth of obligatory gestures to remedy that so you know even my friend uh, john who lives in japan he said you got to be careful about opening doors for people it's like oh you've done me this favor now i must return it you've got to be careful about giving gifts because if you give somebody a gift now they have to give you one and then you have to respond it just never ends yeah so you're playing on this specter's sense of honor and duty and politeness in japanese society and that's how you get them so there's ways to get away. So the idea is before you meet one of these horrible uh, monsters is to learn what to do, learn what to say. These are legends, and uh, it's a little disheartening to say, like, no, there's no way out of it. You're going to die. But if you know that there's a trick to it, then you can. And it makes you feel empowered. It's a way of tricking the devil, of cheating death. You know, and there's all kinds of stories of, of how to trick the devil. You know what's smart? Starting an unboxing YouTube channel where we just talk about fun new tech gadgets that would get sent to us for free. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what's not smart? Starting a podcast that does 36 (laughs) research-heavy episodes a year. Uh, Yeah, that maybe wasn't so smart, but you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash legends to hire the right person. Yeah, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply, so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com legends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know how I can tell our beloved fall season is upon us? It's because I'm wearing our limited edition Halloween hoodie, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, that too. But I know the seasons are changing by all the types of fresh, seasonally inspired ingredients I'm getting with my Blue Apron meals. Oh, yeah, you're right. I've noticed the same thing with more root vegetables like squash, and I love sweet potatoes any time of year. And for those of you out there with regular, clearly defined seasons, just know that in L.A., the seasons changing can be a lot more subtle. <laughs> well, everyone knows, or should know by now, that Blue Apron gives you so much control over what types of meals and recipes you prefer, and then their chefs pick out the freshest ingredients for you so you don't have to go hunt them down. And that gives you more control over your schedule and your life. 
I know you'd like to have Blue Apron's top-notch culinary team surprise you with recipes each week, but my family and me, well, we can be a little picky, which is why we actually have fun looking over the variety of dishes on their fantastic website for our meal planning. It's like choosing from the menu at your favorite restaurant, except that you're the chef. Yeah, just listen to the variety of meals coming up. Tomato and basil pesto pizza with roasted cauliflower. Stir-fried sweet chili chicken with broccoli and rice. Seared steaks and homemade steak sauce with mashed potatoes and sautéed carrots. Stop, man. You're making me hungry, and we still got a lot of work to do. Well, that's true. All right. Well, let's fix that for everyone else. Just go check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash astonishing. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hi, I'm Marty from the podcast The Legend of Wandering John. And when I'm not out chasing down immortals cursed to wander until the end of time, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. These stories are all very subjective. These right. legends are very subjective. It seems to be about what you personally believe. Yeah. For me, I'm not convinced that you're going to get away. I could just see in my <laughs> situation, if I met Kuchisaka Ona, yeah. And I threw candy at her. I know she would just still kill me. <laughs> well, she, well, maybe because you wouldn't have very good candy. You know, you're make, no, you're I would have the yet. right stuff. I'm, <laughs> Full I've size got some Snickers. Of it. Yeah, I've got it with me right now, just <laughs> it's in always, case. It's always good to have. But here's my point earlier is that regardless of candy or spare change, in these stories, in these types of uh, fables, especially the, you know, the grim fairy tales, it's being more clever than the thing that's trying to kill you or gain advantage. One of my favorite examples, of course, and I think I mentioned this while we were doing the research, is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes. Because it's the classic scene when what's left of King Arthur's uh, troop there gets to the bridge of death, and uh, you have to get past the bridge keeper, and he confronts you with saying, stop, who would cross the bridge of death must answer me these questions three, ere the other side he see. And so he asks you three simple, silly questions. And uh, what I liked is, how do you get past him? It's like, you know, well, first, of course, I believe Lancelot gets really easy questions. Like his last ones, what's your favorite color? Blue. Like, okay, off you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then, of course, it is not so great for the rest of them. But King Arthur, he gets his questions. You know, the bridge keeper uh, starts off with the easy ones. You know, what is your name? Uh, it is Arthur, King of the Britons. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? And he trips him up by saying, well, what do you mean, an African or European swallow? Yes. And the bridgekeeper doesn't know. So he's flung over into the abyss. Yes. That's how you get around that. The same thing here. Kuchisaka Ona, she asks you again, am I pretty now? And you're like, I don't know, so-so, average. And it confounds her. So you've tripped her up. So this is a, a key mechanism, I think, in a story like this, where it's this thing you must get past and you outsmart the device. You see this all the time in, in legend and lore. So I, I just love that part of it because, yeah. again, it's, it, it's empowering. If, if you can be smart, if you can be clever, there's a solution to this. Before we wrap it up and we go to our own tale of Kuchisaka Ona, I know that you had asked the research corps to see if they could find any modern day parallel events to some of these yokai. Mm -hmm. How did that search come up? Well, uh, 
not exactly fruitful, but telling in that, again, if you go to the, uh, the wiki page, and again, I, I like that Matthew thought uh, it was fairly well comprehensive because that's all this is, is. It's a compendium of people's tales. and Well, yeah, it's a Japanese version of creepypasta, just like Tara Devlin's podcast that we mentioned at the top of the show, Koabana. Yeah, it, exactly. It's distilled down and this is what you get. These are the elements that are left over. So there's really a couple of incidents that people point to a lot in their blogs and writings and articles where this legend may have, I don't know, squeezed out into popular society, into real life. And one is in the 70s, there was kind of a craze in Japan, specifically in 1979 around the Nagasaki prefecture. It was throughout Japan. It started there and thought to have spread throughout Japan where a group of kids or somebody reported a woman chasing kids around. Yes. And who knows? Again, that's the great start of every urban legend where somebody thought they saw something, spider eggs in the bubble yum, something happened, that spreads, it just blows up. And then, you know, there's panic. And so in that report, there were kids that would be marching home in groups and looking, stepping out of ways from each telephone pole that they passed because they thought that she might be hiding behind each one. And that got to be so bad that teachers started walking them home, supposedly. And that got to be so bad that police upped their patrols and would put men on the street looking for this woman. Now, that could be, you know, certainly, unfortunately, you look at the stories today, and that's not that uncommon. Back then, in 1979, I could say, like, every, maybe every once in a while, something weird happened. We had weird reports. I can tell you, back in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, as a kid going trick-or-treating, that's when I started hearing, like, horrible things happening. And now you got to check your candy. And then you had to take your candy to the fire station because they had a metal detector, and they would scan it. Yes. So I could now, see how Now, my kid, panic. I'll tell you this. Yeah. My yeah. kid... The dentist is popular at the school. He's not the one who hands out little boxes of raisins. No, no, no. But you bring all the candy in and then the school gets a huge donation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. He doesn't eat it. He turns it in to the dentist and then the school gets like a couple thousand dollars donation. What happens to the candy? I think the dentist probably throws it away. That is the worst Halloween idea (laughs) ever. That is, oh my, that's terrible. I know, but you know what? My my son doesn't have a sweet tooth, really. He doesn't care about it. It just sits around. He never eats it anyway. Well, that's good. No, I mean, I I, I don't either, but just just as a holiday, what an insult. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's like you go to the house and the guy, a dentist lives there and he gives you a toothbrush. Yeah. It's like, no, you're not getting this. I have a toothbrush. I will brush before I go to bed. But where's the damn candy? Well, I tell you, we used to go to this neighborhood that's not very far away from where we are now recording, uh, Toluca Lake. And there's a lot of celebrities that live over there. Right. But one of them is Leonard Malton, the movie guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what I remember about Mr. Malton is he would sit there at the front door, and when you went to his house, you got a full-size Snickers. There you go. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's what you should be handing out. We had a kind older lady at the end of our block and handed out full-size candy bars. Not that fun-size crap. Yeah. Full candy bars. Now, you only need one of those, and, you know, they're more expensive, but we always remembered her. And that's a good way not to get your house egged and your windows (laughs) soaped. Nobody did that really in our our neighborhood back then, but but it happened. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about is that there's tradition that you're seeing here. So anyway, to answer that question, to get back to that, there doesn't really appear to be any solid police reports or even news reports that Tess and the Ark could dig up. I mean, Megan was all over this. She's familiar with Japanese culture. I think Tess even looked on Japanese Google. Yes. (laughs) So there are 
reports that people write about in their blogs and certainly cases and testimonials and, you know, all your sites that are aggregate that have people's stories on them, you'll see stuff pop up where there's something similar or somebody saw somebody that looked like Kuchisaka Ona, but it's not exactly a report on the news. So that's a little vague. There's another one here that's reported a lot in 2004 in South Korea. There was a report about a woman who is uh, chasing children around. And she supposedly had a red mask. Now, there have been tie-ins to what people think are the plastic surgery craze of, uh, in Korea, South Korea, in the early 2000s, and that the red mask may have been something symbolic about that. And again, also in Asian society, you see a lot of people wearing masks for health reasons. If you have a cold, it's polite not to, uh, again, that's the politeness, not to hack your germs all over p other people. Gosh, you know, I didn't realize that was, I thought it was primarily rooted in concerns about pollution and intake of, of bad air. That's part of it, especially in China where it's really thick. I don't know if that's going to help. I mean, it's soaking into your eyes, yeah. you know, where you can't even see down the block. It's terrible. But I think most of it is fear of germs. So it's the politeness, like if you don't want to catch germs. Also, if you have a cold, it's the polite thing. Wouldn't that be nice if people here who had uh, the flu, yes. instead of uh, like we experienced at uh, one restaurant, somebody just turning and sneezing all over you and your food. My sushi roll. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The guy was at the table next to me. He turned, I guess, to prevent sneezing on his own food yeah. and the... He overspray did, hit yeah. my arm and my roll. Yeah, which you can see is a fine, ghostly mist oh, in the sunlight. This is and... worse than the stories we're telling tonight. <laughs> well, he did, yeah, well, as I'm saying, it's the real-life <laughs> consequence. He kind of missed the crook of his elbows. You're supposed to do the Dracula yeah. know, and, and sneeze into your, the crook of your arm. He <sighs> did not really do... It was Disaster. kind of a half-hearted effort, and yeah. So that's the point. You wear the mask to prevent that from other people, but also protect yourself, just because it's a tightly packed, dense society, so yes. you're around people a lot. The other one that I've seen uh, with young Japanese women is that it's sometimes fashionable, you know, kind of the, the shyness aspect and kind of a mysterious fashion thing. There are now ones that have animal noses on them mm -hmm. in different colors, and uh, it's kind of a fashion thing. If you look on YouTube for uh, some, like, popular Japanese dances or somebody doing it at their home, they, they'll often wear a mask. See, how do we know that Kuchisaka Ona is not just hiding out in everyday society with one of those cute little animal masks? Well, there's the conclusion on this uh, idea about modern-day occurrences, is that you just don't know. I mean, it's hard to follow these up with any real-world stories. That's what we're saying here in this segment, is that it also states here in the in the article, in 2007, a coroner found some old records from the 1970s, you know, about a woman chasing little children. Then the story goes that she gets hit by a car and either, I think the car accident had ripped her mouth open cheek to cheek, or she was deformed before that and got hit by the car. And that cements that into the Kuchisaka Ona story. You know what I'm saying? Like, there we go. That's her, or there's one of her. And who knows? That's not been kind of confirmed. That was also taken from a couple of blogs that people have posted, which, you know, that's also urban legend as well. But definitely there could be people chasing around who have, you know, mental issues and that's all it takes. And then these things start. And then as we found, they never end. It was another late night working at the Gojokoge Research Institute in Gifu Prefecture. But my co-worker had offered to give me a ride home, at least most of the way, until his road diverged from mine in this small and beautiful mountainous village. That was fine by me, as the rest of the way would be a short walk home, and the cold, late October night air would give me a chance to clear my head of all of the day's data. 
As he pulled over to let me out, I thanked him and assured him I would see him back here at this spot, 8 a.m. sharp tomorrow morning. It was a walk I enjoyed even when the snows would come, as well as warm summer nights, because I loved the sound of gentle wind through the trees of the nearby hills. The stars in the clear night sky were lovely to look at no matter the season. But as I took my familiar steps at my casual pace, an uneasiness grew over me. It's hard to explain, but it was as if I was getting lost. A feeling made even more disquieting since I was nearing my neighborhood and have walked this route a thousand times over. I shouldn't even have to think about where I was going. However, it was all I could think about because nothing seemed familiar. Not the corner shop, not a house, nothing. I was suddenly a stranger. I looked back, wondering if I had made a wrong turn or if I could see a sign I'd walked past, and if maybe I should turn back. I spun back around to gauge my route and was met with the most unexpected sight on this strange night. Out of nowhere, standing about three meters away, was one of the most stunningly beautiful women I had ever seen. About my height, tall for a Japanese woman, and wearing a fashionable dress, perhaps vintage looking, perhaps traditional. For some reason, I couldn't tell. Odd, because on this cold night, she had no coat. That was all she was wearing. And my descriptor of beautiful might sound strange if you saw a picture of her, because how could I know from looking only at her eyes? I say just her eyes because the rest of her face was covered with a red surgical mask. As you might know, wearing a surgical mask for Asians is pretty commonplace these days, especially at the beginning of cold and flu season, even fashionable for a young woman, as the bright red color might suggest. Perhaps it was to soften the brisk chill in the air. I might have been more startled at her sudden appearance, but something about her eyes and her overall attractive countenance had calmed me. As humans, we are born attracted to beauty and repulsed by ugliness, and it was no different this time. Beauty and music are said to calm the savage beast, but even the most savage beast can also be frozen with fear. For me, tonight I would know both heavenly calm and hellish fear, and one would turn to the other in the blink of an eye. For a long moment, we just looked at each other in assessment, as I thought of what to say maybe even searching for a charming icebreaker. She relieved me of that duty by speaking first. With a soft, alluring timbre, she asked, Do you think I'm pretty? A strange opening question, perhaps, but I've heard much worse, and it had the effect of launching my male instincts. A timid smile formed across my lips as I answered, Yes, it was the only thing I could think of to say. She then reached up with a delicate hand and pulled down her mask. She was beautiful, but something looked wrong, something that I did not immediately notice. Then she began her Duchenne smile, and it did not stop until the corners of her mouth had nearly reached her ears. And by this I mean, it quickly became quite clear what was wrong. Her mouth had been sliced open, clear through each cheek, curving slightly upwards forming a most sickening grimace. Like it was freshly cut, rivulets of dark, purplish blood gushed from the wounds and ran down her jaw, streaming down her neck, blotted by her dress. Though it should be impossible, since her lips did not now touch her teeth, 
from the sharp-looking incisors all the way to the molars. She asked her second question. How was she not screaming in pain? How was I not screaming in terror? Our sense of wanting to be kind, wanting to do the right thing, is ironically what often gets us into trouble. And as much as I tried to do the same, by wanting to answer with a kindly yes, I didn't. For once in my life, I couldn't help myself. And as the hushed and frightened reply of no had left my lips, I immediately knew it was the wrong answer. But I could not take it back. What did it matter? I would learn in another world from this one that there is no right answer. Only perhaps one that would delay my ultimate misfortune. What happened next was an impossible burst of supernatural movement so fast no human could have made it. While I watched this flash, at once quick and also in seemingly slow motion, a large pair of scissors was suddenly thrust forward by her. Previously unnoticed, her beauty, the magician's diversion. A pair of rusty yet razor-sharp blades was now straddling my cheeks, piercing to the jawbone. At that moment, I was paralyzed. Like a Satsuma vase, slipping from your hands and being unable to do anything but watch it fall. I must have been slack-jawed from my slow surprise, because I next heard the blades cut clean through, making a sound like cutting rubber. But of course, it must have been more like cutting steak with kitchen shears. It was like I let her do it, mesmerized, docile, and complicit, like how some men would let a beautiful woman get away with murder. There are a lot of capillaries in the human face, and when cut, it bleeds easily and quickly. I noticed this myself as my mouth and throat filled with hot blood. At first, I felt nothing, nothing but that initial shock and confusion. As my nerves finally did their job, I could feel a sharp spike and sting of pain, worse than any migraine I've had, although accompanied by the same flashes of blinding light and heat, like Ouija's flashbulb going off in your head. My legs buckled as my body went limp. Somewhere in that prolonged moment, I thought it was interesting I could still feel the pain of my weak knees hitting the ground. That thought was replaced by yet more pain, that of my nose and teeth smacking the near-frozen dirt as I fell forward towards her. Insult added to injury. I thought I must have rolled myself over on my back because I wanted to, but since I was still paralyzed, I knew it must have been her who had gently grabbed my shoulder and turned me over so she could see me, so she could watch the life run out of me. The pleasure I remembered from my youth a beautiful woman leaning over you, her long, draping hair framing her face like bed curtains, her soft breath whispering something sweet, was replaced by an unknowable fear as she leaned in close, her cold blood mixing with mine, to ask again through a gaping wound, am I pretty? No one saw this, no one heard, no one came to help. She and I were completely alone there, we would forever be alone there, together. On my street, which used to be so comforting because I knew I was about to be home, safe, but now knew I would never get home, and I would never walk this street again. I laid there for what seemed like an eternity, 
unable to move, unable to speak, gurgling blood and choking me, as I tried harder and harder to breathe, but I couldn't catch my breath. I knew I must have been laying there for a long time, long enough for the puffs of spattered steam from my bloodied nose to grow smaller with each exhalation, and the once hot blood that was pooling around my head grew ice cold on the back of my neck, making me shiver along with the shock. I was injured badly, but my rationale tried to comfort me. This should not be life-threatening. I should be able to survive this, I told myself. Sure, there would be a long recovery, maybe a year, and I would have scars that would haunt me and everyone that looked at me for the rest of my life. Maybe in the same way people reacted to her. But nothing about this encounter was reasonable, and even though my rational mind said I shouldn't bleed out there, that eventually I could get help. I knew that wasn't going to happen. Somehow, she was speeding up the process. She was draining the life from me, and I knew I was going to die. To any other passerby that might dare to stop, I must have looked horrifying, like a monster with a wide, bloody, gaping, grotesque grin of red teeth, but not to her. It seemed she liked the way I looked, because now I looked like her. As I stared up at her, unable to blink with the cold night air freezing my eyes, with her still kneeling over me, I remembered that I knew this beautiful woman. In fact, many knew her. She was famous. Her name was Kuchisake Ona, the slit-mouthed woman. And in my final moments, as my soul was being spirited away, her desperate yet rhetorical question that I now could not answer still echoed in my ears. <laughs> That's going to wrap up this week's episode of Astonishing Legends. We'll be back next week with a brand new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Marty White. I give present or future compensation. Galaxy-wide and in perpetuity. To astonishing legends. And for the record and per your instructions on the website. This is with no implied promise. To a Marty White. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell. And our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.